This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. We have a tendency to want to see things in black and white. It's simpler that way, right? If there's good and evil, if there's right and wrong, if there's we're dating or we're not dating, it just all makes so much sense. But we all know it's never that easy. This week on Propaganda, we're making things complicated. In a good way. Complicated is good. This week, we're talking about breaking the binary. The idea for this episode, like all our episodes this fall, came from a listener. They wanted to hear about how binary thinking as a cultural structure and ideology influences us. So on this episode, we're rethinking binaries in neuroscience, sexuality, gender, and disability. Stay tuned, because it's going to get complicated. Say it once. Say it twice. Say it over. Say it right. Do it once. Do it twice. Do it over. Do it right. One of the most basic ideas about binaries that we have in our culture is about brains. Specifically, that men and women have fundamentally different brains. You hear this all the time. It's the basis of, like, all boring stand-up comedy. Here's one example from Mark Gunger, a pastor who works with Focus on the Family and whose career has been built on giving motivational talks about marriage. Here's a clip from his talk, A Tale of Two Brains, which, by the way, has been viewed four million times on YouTube. All right, now men's brains... Are, are very unique. Men's brains are made up of little boxes. And we have a box for everything. We've got a box for the car. We've got a box for the money. We've got a box for the job. We've got a box for you. We've got a box for the kids. We've got a box for your mother somewhere in the basement. We got, we got, we, we got boxes everywhere. Now, women's brains are very, very different from men's brains. Women's brains are made up of a big ball of wire. And everything is connected to everything. <laughs> the money's connected to the car, and the car's connected to your job, and your kids are connected to your mother, and everything's connected to everything. And it's like... <laughs> it's like the internet superhighway. Okay? And, and it's all driven by energy that we call emotion. So maybe you don't necessarily think that men compartmentalize everything and that women's brains are metal balls just waiting for an emotional lightning strike so they can go on the fritz. But there's this perception, even not that extreme, that gender determines something about the shape and structure of our brains. This was the scientific thinking for a long time. But in the last decade or so, neuroscientists have come up with a much more complicated picture. It's not as simple as a binary. There's no such thing as a male brain or a female brain. Bitch editorial intern Rebecca Kuhn has been looking into this subject this summer and wrote about the gender of brain science at bitchmedia.org. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Sarah. 
Thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you took a look at recent neuroscience looking at the relationship between gender and brain structure. Right. Just tell us what you found. What's the science say about this? So there was a study that came out at the end of last year that um, looked at 1,400 brains. They looked at MRIs from 1,400 brains. And basically what they showed was that all brains have a mix of characteristics that would be considered male or female. So they called this the mosaic brain. So basically what they showed was that the different anatomical structures in the brain don't align with a person's biological sex necessarily. So like they looked at gray matter and white matter and connections in the brain. And um, previous research had sort of showed that um, brains fit neatly into two categories. And what this study showed was that Everybody has a mix of, of both characteristics. So there's two categories that, that the previous science looked at. Was that male and female? Correct. And so scientists before thought that like, oh, you can look at somebody's brain and tell if they're male or tell if they're female. Right. And so when these scientists in in this most recent study, which was from where? Who was doing um, this research? It was from t- uh, the, the research designer was from Tel Aviv University. Interesting. And so... When they looked at people's brains, they found actually you have a mix of characteristics. You can't tell from looking at somebody's brain whether they're male or female. That's right. What what kind of characteristics were they looking at that were like traditionally male or traditionally female? Um, so they, I know that they looked at gray matter, white matter, and then connections in the brain. Um, the neuroscience research gets a little hairy. Um, (laughs) A little heady, maybe? Yes, a little heady. Um, And so for somebody who's not a neuroscientist, it can be a little bit tough to understand exactly what they were looking at. I think when some people hear characteristics associated with male and female, they think like personality traits. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. So they were actually just looking at the anatomical structure of the brain, Ah, like things that they could see on an MRI. Um, And so I think that previously, um, because personality characteristics are so aligned with gender, or we think they are, there was also this idea that our our physical brains must also really differ. And so this study showed that that's actually not true. So our brains are a spectrum. Our brains are a spectrum. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, a rainbow exactly. spectrum. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so there's still this, I think, this commonly held idea that I hear all the time about like, well, you know, men do this because their brains are different. It comes from, you know, our brains have been different since we were cavemen and women just have different brains. Like, Mm -hmm. why does that stick around that notion? And how does this science counter that? So the idea that men and women have different brains um, is a way that we can justify oppression and um, social inequalities. And so, and there's actually a long tradition of biological research being used to justify oppression of different groups. So for example, in the 18th century, scientists um, used a practice called phrenology where they measured and classified human skulls and um, quote unquote proved that um, Caucasians were superior to people of other races. So this idea that the biological differences between people um, determine inequality is actually a really dangerous one because if we believe that, then that's something that we can't change because we don't have control over our biology. But if we see biology as more of a spectrum and we don't divide people into those different classes, then it becomes easier to 
um, see sort of oppression and social inequality as culturally constructed rather than biologically determined. Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of a tricky topic, but uh, there have been a lot of studies saying that men and women react differently in different situations. And some of that comes down to neurology. So this study that you're talking about, those out of Tel Aviv University, show that like on a fundamental level, you can't tell someone's gender from the shape of their brain. But do are there gendered ways that our pathways are made in our brain? Like, are there different personality traits that come from our brain? So the study didn't actually link anatomical characteristics with personality traits. It was purely looking at the sort of physical makeup of people's brains. Um, what they One thing that I think is really important to stress is that the study isn't saying that... Um, that there are no differences between people's brains. But it's just not as cut and dry as we usually like to think because, um, because again, people have sort of a mix of characteristics. You have a young daughter yourself. I do. How old is she? Four. And do you think a lot about how her brain is developing? Is this something that, may, that you've thought about as a parent? Like, oh, I want my, I want my kid to have a good brain. <laughs> you know, As you're reading this brain science, are you thinking about your daughter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about her brain development a lot. Um, and But it's hard for me in my mind to separate that from sort of the cultural influences. And I don't of, often know sort of which is which. And that could be just because I'm not a scientist. Um, but I definitely do think about like her language acquisition and um, what it means when she like picks up certain ways of talking about things and how much of that is like brain function and how much of that is you know stuff that she's picking up from the other kids at preschool or whatever. Yeah I mean in this study we're talking about just the way that your brain is constructed Mm -hmm. but so much of the way that you are that we think of as part of your brain comes from culture comes from the way you're raised and all those influences. So it's a little bit, it's hard to parse out all the time, like the physical neurology of your brain versus what role culture and parenting plays in that. Yeah, I think you're right. And they actually, there's a note in the study about that um, where they talk about, they don't differentiate between the terms sex and gender in the the way the study is written, which uh, when I was reading it, I was surprised by and it um, I found it kind of troubling but they have a little explanation in there that talks about basically like regardless of whether um, because there's this thing called neuroplasticity which is the idea that like our environment and um, the experiences that we have and the interactions that we have in the world actually change the anatomical structure of our brain Um, and so the study the reason they don't differentiate between sex and gender in the study is because they said regardless of whether this is um, these are innate biological characteristics or whether they're culturally determined the end result is the same and that is that everybody has this sort of mosaic or mix of characteristics in their brain. Hmm. And so regardless of the way you you present to the world, whether you're presenting female, presenting male, identify as a man or a woman or genderqueer or anywhere on the gender spectrum, your brain is also going to be a spectrum inside your brain. That's right. So was reading about the science surprising to you, Rebecca? Did Is this what you expected to read when you were starting to read about uh, gender and brains? Or did you expect it to fall into more binary categories? The idea that there's a male brain and a female brain is so prevalent um, that certainly like some of that has seeped into my understanding of how brains work. Um, As I was reading the study, I was thinking a lot about um, and 
probably a lot of your listeners has, have heard of the work of Anne Fausto Sterling. She's a biologist um, at Brown University who does a lot of work on um, challenging binary understandings of biological sex. And so because I'm familiar with her work and like thinking about sex as a spectrum, um, because we're used to thinking about gender as a spectrum, right? Like that's a pretty, that's an idea that we're all pretty on board with. Um, but being introduced- We being- uh, propaganda. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Feminists. Uh, right. Maybe not culture at large. Um, yeah. But so, you know, I remember in in grad school being introduced to the idea that sex is also a spectrum was kind of mind blowing to me. And so then reading like an extension of that type of understanding of biological sex as a spectrum, um, reading about that extending into brain science didn't surprise me too much, but it definitely did like push against some pretty ingrained cultural understandings of male and female brains that I think I've been exposed to since I was little, like most people. Well, Rebecca, if people want to read the study and read your reporting on it, they can do so at bitchmedia.org. What's the headline on the article? Uh, Binary is a beautiful thing to break. Ah, yay. Thanks for sharing your talents with us this summer as our editorial intern, Rebecca, and also for being on the show. It's been my pleasure. Zero, 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 zero. Zero, 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 one. Zero, zero, one, zero. Zero, zero, one, one. Zero, one, zero, zero. Zero, one, zero. Zero one one zero zero one 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 zero 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 one zero zero one one zero one zero one zero one 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 zero zero one one zero one 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 Thank you. That was a bit of binary poetry from the poet Infinemesis. You're listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Our theme today, Breaking the Binary. Last year, the British government did this really interesting survey. They ask 1,600 adults to place their sexuality on the Kinsey scale. Developed by researcher Alfred Kinsey in the 1940s, the Kinsey scale is a way to think about sexual orientation as a range rather than a binary. On the one side of the scale, at zero, is someone who's exclusively heterosexual. On the other side, at six, is someone who's 100% homosexual. This sounds basic if you're already familiar with the idea of sexuality as a spectrum, but it runs contrary to a lot of our pop culture and societal thinking. It's still assumed in a lot of ways, big and small and constantly frustrating, that everyone in our culture is straight. You see it in advertisers and film studio executives who gear their pop culture toward an assumed straight audience. It's horrendously heterocentric. In that British study, a huge number of people said they were neither straight nor gay. 43% of people between the ages of 18 and 24 said that they were somewhere in the middle of all straight or all gay. That percentage of some degree of bisexual folks dropped a bit with age, 
among 25 to 39-year-olds, 29% of Brits placed themselves somewhere between straight and gay, and among people over 60, it was just 7%. I think this study is really interesting because it shows that among the younger generation, there's a comfortableness with fluidity, with a gray area, with a spectrum rather than an either-or identity. And it's important because the reality of bisexuality is often dismissed and overlooked. If you're a woman married to a man, for example, a lot of people are going to assume you're straight, even if that's not the case. There is this way that, like, with bisexuality, you're kind of coming out all of the time, you know, because I pass a straight, right? I'm in a straight marriage and a monogamous one. So there's this way that, like, you're always surprising people. That's Zara Norbash. She's a stand-up comedian and the co-host of the excellent podcast Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. And this summer, Zara finally came out to her family as bi. I talked to her about this on, appropriately, National Bi Visibility Day, which was September 23rd. I guess in retrospect, I probably always identified as being bisexual. I just didn't know that it was an option. And also, like, I always associated bisexuality with, like, something in porn. <laughs> the hotness of two girls as it would please a man. And the, the male gaze on that was, like, very present, that it was for a guy. And, yeah, it took me a while to actually, uh, by a while, I mean, like, by the, I'm 36 years old. So just a little while to, <laughs> to actually own it as, like, an identity. Um, and it helped a lot when women who were also married to men would tell me that they were bisexual. Um, just like in conversation, we would be talking about sexuality and they would mention it. And then it was like, oh, huh, I think I am too, I think. Zara's husband had known for years that she was bi. She told him on one of their first dates in a rather uh, abrupt way. Looking back on that, it might have been a little curious to mention that to my boyfriend right after we'd had sex. Like, by the way, that wasn't great what you just did. I'm bisexual. I have had experience that was better than that. And I just want to put that out there that, like, I might choose that instead of you. <laughs> was the way that he took it. They had a bunch of conversations about her sexuality. Actually, there were two conversations going on here. One about sexual orientation and one about monogamy. Would Zara feel good about dating a man? Or would she always be missing women in her life? Would she be happy with monogamy? Is that what she wanted? It took a long time for me to say, I do, till death do us part. And even if other people turn us on, I'm with you. So Zara and her husband had gone through all this years ago and keep talking about sexuality a lot. But she never talked about her identity with the rest of her family, her parents and her siblings. They didn't know. And she felt a bit like, why stir things up? Why do they need to know? But then this year, something happened that made her realize the power of visibility. I woke up Sunday morning, June 12th. I turned on the TV and I saw the news about the nightclub shooting in Orlando. And I spent the next 15 hours sobbing. In the days since That's Ellen DeGeneres, of course, describing the deadly attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. As she followed the coverage of the attack, Zara's heart broke. The effect of the shooting had hit me so hard. And I was so sad and grief-stricken. And then even worse was knowing that there were so many of my friends who it wasn't safe for them to be out to their families for a number of reasons, emotionally, physically, mentally. Um, and that on top of having to 
grieve through this process. Um, and I, I believe it happened during or near the end of Ramadan. They're sitting at dinner with their families and they can't talk about it or address it. You know, it just, it made me so sad. And then at the same time, I was like, I can't. And then I got angry and then I got scared and then I got worried. And then all of those emotions turned into me, you know, going, whoa, this is something that I can't ignore. There's a lot going on here. What is going on? Another infuriating part of the media coverage of that shooting was how right-wing pundits got time on the air to talk about their belief that the LGBT communities and Muslim communities were at odds. They got to say on the air that Islam is inherently homophobic. Zara knows that's not true in her life experience, and she wanted to counter that, to say, no, you can be bi and be Muslim. But in addition to facing a complicated conversation with her family, she was wary of what it would mean to call herself by on the big public platform of her podcast. And I went to a lot of my queer friends um, and was like, what is going on with me? And, you know, am I gay enough? Am I gay enough? Am I gay enough? Can I ask you that? Is it okay if I, like, ask you this? You know, and... And I was so scared of the politics of it because I, I wanted to do a good job. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't like usurping some identity. And then uh, it was a couple of really great friends who are also activists that were like, you know, bi erasure is a real thing. And no, there isn't such a thing as like gay enough. So this summer, Zara talked on Good Muslim, Bad Muslim about being bisexual. She kind of thought that her family would listen to the show and then call her up and ask about her sexuality. But no one said anything. She's been all summer traveling. Zara's a stand-up comedian, so she has a lot of gigs. And when she got back to her parents' house, she was on edge. She was super stressed out. When I finally got home, my mom like asked me, like, hey, how come you're not going to your cousin's wedding? And as soon as she said, hey, I was like, you know, again, feverish, like, is this it? This is it. Like we're having this conversation. And then like every moment after that, where she was like, Hey, do you want espresso or do you want like an iced coffee? Like, and I was like, I can't deal with this. I, I can't <laughs> hang out with my folks. Like I live with my folks when I'm not gigging. And so I was like, I, I really can't take any more of this. And so then I joined my parents for dinner. My little sister was there and I said, Hey, uh, so in the latest episode of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, I came out as bisexual, and uh, my husband knows, he's always known, and uh, so there's that. What's up? And I, like, I was bracing for impact, you know, like, here we go, what's gonna happen? Like, is my mom gonna cry? Like, I had heard friends tell me that that happens. Is, like, is my sister gonna be disgusted? I had heard friends tell me that that could happen. My dad was the one who reacted first, and he just immediately goes, girls? Women? And he looks at my mom and looks back at me, and he goes, good luck. And of course, my mom then punches him in the shoulder and goes, shut up. <laughs> what do you mean, good luck? And then she immediately wanted to know, like, 
which of my friends I was sleeping with. Is it this person? Is it this person? Is it this person? And she started going through my Facebook feed. I was laughing, but then I was like, okay, A, this is what I hate about conversations about bisexuality is that they're always about sex. And it it's not just about sex. And no, I'm not sleeping with all my friends. <laughs> but if I was, that'd be fine too. And my little sister was the one who was like really processing it all. And she asked me, um, you know, oh my God, like Orlando must have been really hard for you. You didn't mention it then. And then that really hit me. And it's hard for me to show my emotion when I'm sad with my folks, especially. And my little sister, you know, like, and she would hate this, <laughs> but I still see her as like my little sister. And it's really hard for me as the oldest in my family to let my family take care of me. And so I just kind of took a breath and um, I said, yeah, you know, there are a lot of people that are saying you can't be gay and Muslim. And so it felt really important to claim that space. And my mom was like, awesome and she was so mad and she was like god i hate that nobody stands between you and allah nobody that is islam that's the whole point because muslims also believe in jesus christ not as the son of god but as a prophet and she said jesus walked on water but allah gave hazrat muhammad a little orphan boy who was illiterate a book and said read because self-discovery makes you a prophet, not a bunch of self-righteous jerks. Zara wrote a really great article for Bitch about the process of coming out as bi. Look it up at bitchmedia.org. Coming soon, shirts from Zara's mom that say self-righteous jerks. Okay. Not really, I made that up. But you can definitely read the essay and hear more of Zara's excellent stories at her podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Hey listeners, just a quick note about who makes this show. Propaganda is produced by nonprofit independent bitch media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. So if you love our work and want to pitch in, become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org pollinators. Also, a special plug, we want to feature some listener stories from you on a show that's coming up. It's about surviving male-dominated and white-dominated spaces. A listener suggested we do a show about navigating everyday patriarchal stuff, so we're making one. I'm sure you have a story, regardless of your race or gender, about a time when you've noticed a weird power dynamic in a mostly male or mostly white office or event or classroom. 
So record a short voice memo about it and send it in to Sarah with an H at bword.org. You don't have to share some profound wisdom or have any kind of brilliant takeaway. We just want to hear about a time that's been tricky and how you felt. So surviving as a minority in spaces is the theme. Record a voice memo and send it to Sarah with an H at bword.org. So today we're talking about gray areas, spectrums, making things complicated in a good way, breaking the binary. This next story comes to us from a high schooler, fledgling radio reporter Nanette Thompson, who put together this dispatch from her high school in El Cerrito, California, with the help from the nonprofit Youth Radio. Listen in. The first time I learned that gender could be fluid was in sex ed in the ninth grade. I remember the teacher mumbling under her breath that some people don't identify their gender with the biological sex they were born with. At the time, it didn't faze me because I had never known anyone who talked about it or felt that way. But now, three years later, I have a 16-year-old classmate who's trans. My name is Jace. That is the name I have chosen. It's what my parents would have named me if I was born biologically male. Jace McDonald was born female, but says he always knew there was something different about him. He didn't like so-called girl things, and more than that, he felt like a boy. At 13, he started identifying as transgender and has become something of an activist. Never ask someone who's trans what their real name is. That is so offensive. My real name is Jace, and my birth name is none of your business. Jace has thick glasses and short brown hair, and he's outspoken at school. One time in English class when a teacher stumbled over gender terminology, Jay stepped in to clarify and ended up teaching a whole lesson himself. High school is hard enough as it is. High school is someone who is non-gender conforming. It just makes it harder. How many times today am I going to be called a girl? Last year, California's first law protecting gender non-conforming students went into effect. It gives Jace the right to use the bathroom of his choice. This is actually where some of our main bathrooms are. When Jace uses the boys' bathroom between classes, he says occasionally kids give him strange looks. So if I go in there and people are already in there, I'm more likely to just hold it and go to my next class. It seems rough, but Jace says this is way better than he used to have it. He's a junior now, and this is his first year at my school. He's gone to two other high schools and left because he was taunted. At my school, he says he finally feels safe. At an elementary school two towns away, teachers start addressing gender identity at a young age with the goal of making school more safe and inclusive. My name is Tomas Rocha and we're at Malcolm X Elementary School. Third grader Tomas Rocha has shoulder length hair and long bangs. He's wearing a turquoise My Little Pony t-shirt and black flats. A lot of days he wears dresses and last year he started using the girls' bathroom. Tomas says people regularly ask him if he's a boy or a girl. I just really think I'm really both. I don't really care um, what people call me. Some pe- sometimes I say I'm a girl. Sometimes I say I'm a boy. Sometimes I say, does it really matter? It mattered to his mom, Amy. She struggled with Tomas's gender bending and at first hoped it was a phase. His first grade teacher told me that, yeah, I don't know if this is a phase. And so that scared me because I wanted it to be a phase because I didn't want to have 
to have my child hurt. I wanted him to be what society wants a baby boy to be like when they're born, you know, a tough and want to play sports. She didn't want him to be bullied. I overheard a student say to Tomas, did you know you were wearing a dress to school today? Julia Beers was Tomas's second grade teacher last year, the first year he started wearing dresses to school. When students question Tomas, Beers tries to assume the best, that her students are curious and not trying to be mean. If a student is laughing, for example, I might say, hmm, what are you thinking when you laugh like that? And by opening up that question, it can often help the student kind of dig deeper and realize, oh, it just seems weird, I feel uncomfortable, or I've never seen someone do that before. According to the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, 82% of transgender young people say they don't feel safe at school. Struggles like the ones my high school classmate Jace has been through are the norm. For Tomas, though, his elementary school's efforts seem to be working. His mom says his grades and behavior improved after he was given more freedom to be himself. Nanette made that story as part of Youth Radio, an awesome Bay Area journalism organization that partners up professionals and students to make stories about things young people care about. They're amazing, so check them out, youthradio.org. Sins Invalid is a performance group like no other. Founded in 2006, Sins Invalid is a performance project that's rooted in disability justice. They explore embodiment, identity, and empowerment in a fundamentally intersectional way that's conceived and led and driven by people of color who have disabilities. The group does some really provocative and radical work. In 2013, Sins Invalid made a documentary about their work. Here are some of the voices from the trailer. Sex and disability are two words that you don't often hear together. And if you do, it's like, does people have sex? So here's the exciting news. Sins Invalid has a brand new show. It's called Birthing, Dying, Becoming Crip Wisdom. And it's running in mid-October at the ODC Theater in San Francisco. Writer Essie Smith interviewed Sins Invalid co-founder Patricia Byrne about complicating representations of disability in our media, about moving away from a binary view of disabled or able-bodied into a way of seeing the diversity of the ways bodies work. Let's listen in. First of all, I'm a huge Sins Invalid fan. I've gone to a lot of your shows. I love your work. Oh, that's so flattering. Thank you so much. It's great to hear. So what is the incubation and working process like when you're preparing a show? Everyone has an independent voice within the show. And, you know, so every piece has an arc, so to speak. And simultaneously, there's one overarching arc within the show. So that's why we're able to put um, excerpts on, you know, YouTube or tour-specific you know, pieces, but 
it's not a cabaret in that they're not kind of disjointed pieces. They're all they're all leading and weaving one arc within the show, um, which again follows the um, arc of birthing, dying, and becoming who we are. And you know, we all have iterations of of this in our own lives, either when we came out birthed ourselves, so to speak, as queers or as people with disabilities. Um, I mean, I know for myself, I've been functionally disabled all of my life, but I really kind of came to a political identity around disability when I was um, in my 20s reading Essex Hemphill as, um, you know, a, a black gay poet and author. And he talked about, you know, essentially multiple forms of uh, oppression and resistance and I was like oh my god that's just like me <laughs> something that I noticed kind of thematically emerging with this show is a lot of discussion of aging and I feel like aging and disability independently are really scary topics for a lot of people and together are like almost a third rail of life in that <laughs> they're both in many ways inevitable for so many of us so what has exploring that been like you know, it's very different um, as a person with a disability, you know, to be, so I'm 49 right now. Um, it's very different to be 39 in general than to be 49. Like our bodies really change when we hit 40. And, um, you know, particularly um, having a disability, we joke that, you know, crip years are like not quite dog years, not like every year is seven years, but it's definitely not a one-to-one ratio. Um, we're used to talking about things that are scary or complex and, you know, that's just kind of part of the parcel, I think, of being, of having, you know, a non-normative body, be it because of disability or, you know, for someone that perhaps is gender non-conforming or perhaps, you know, um, within white supremacy has always been, you know, pushed to the margins um, in terms of our bodies not being centered, like, even though we are the global majority, we're, you know, we're taught in the U.S. that, you know, our experiences as people of color are not, um, are not common, you know, that somehow we're a minority. Um, anyway, so point being the, um, we're used to talking, you know, about uh, things that are difficult. One thing that I've always really admired about Sins Invalid is the very explicitly intersectional from the front nature of the project and the people who are involved. What kind of response do you get to that, especially in the disability community, which is, speaking as a white disabled person, really heavily white dominated? I think sometimes people are, I don't want to say shocked. The first word that came to mind is aghast. <laughs> because a lot of times people in the disability community, in my experience, um, are just loath to talk about any other system of oppression, be it, you know, gender-based oppression or heteronormativity, white supremacy, I mean, any nature of things. I think people are more inclined to talk about class, um, but really, it, you know, historically, the disability rights movement has been very single-issue focused. If people are expecting a disability performance, I think they're going to be surprised because it's not like that's not the totality of who any of us are 
and it's certainly not the totality um, of my identity or of any of the performers' identities. You make an interesting point when you talk about the expectations of the viewer or the listener and in, ter- in terms of coming to a performance and expecting a disability variety show and not getting that. One of the things that I've noticed at the performances that I've attended is that you do an excellent job of breaking down the notion of disability as monolith, that even within disability, embodiment is hugely diverse. And when you're adding these intersectional identities, it gets much more layered. Mm-hmm. Thank you. When we're talking about people with disabilities, and we're talking about every, we're talking about, you know, people that experience their body in some way non-normatively, or their minds, or their uh, emotional processes. Um, And, you know, of course there's going to be variance. I mean, how could there not be variance, right? And just at a certain point, it's considered a disabling variance in this culture. Um, You know, when things like we can really see when it when it comes to things like vision, you know, where at a certain point someone is considered uh, visually impaired or blind, and up until then, you know, you just go to sight for sore eyes, and that's not considered a mobility aid, you know. And it's like yeah, that, that's really interesting, <laughs> you know, that that glasses or contacts aren't considered mobility devices or rather adaptive devices. I mean to say. I feel like there's kind of a slowly growing social awareness that disability is not just a medical problem, but actually an identity and a social embodiment, as it were. Do you see that change as well? Yes. And it's really exciting because um, I feel like we've done a lot of work on people with disabilities over the decades to shift that and um it makes me really proud of the work of the disability rights movement um and moreover really proud of the work that we've done uh setting forth and and uh pushing a disability justice framework i think that there used to be such shame identifying as disabled that um, no one would want to claim it. And I'm not saying that's still not true. In the majority of, you know, at least what I can speak to most, I feel like, you know, most clearly is in the United States. Um, But at the same time, um, it's absolutely shifting. Maybe not everywhere, but it's shifting, you know, where people are, able to identify as both hot and disabled, <laughs> you know, and we never heard that before Sins Invalid, to be honest. I'm not saying Sins Invalid was like the reason or is the reason. I think it's one of many, many, many reasons. But I do feel like we also made a, a good contribution to people being able to identify as disabled and whole. So speaking of being hot and disabled, I promised we would talk about sexy goodness. Yes. So let's talk about sexy goodness. Uh, this has been foregrounded in so many of your performances and so much of your work. Does it completely freak people out that you dare to put sex and disability in the same sentence? Uh, not crips, but 
Yeah, able-bodied people are like, oh my God. And then I forget sometimes, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. And so just the idea of disability and sex freaks people out. But then also, you know, sometimes we have SM content. Sometimes we have, like, we'll go there because that's reality, you know. Um, and it, like, people seriously are like, what? 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 <laughs> um, the first year, we actually had people um, bringing children, like, not infants, but, you know, like eight, nine-year-old people uh, to the show. And I was shocked because... It was explicitly said it's a show about sexuality and disability. And if it had been any other community, you know, people would not have thought to bring a child if it was about, you know, you know, the sexuality of black men, you know, or sexuality of, you know, trans the intersections of sexuality, you know, trans identity and um anything you know people would not have brought children because they would say like oh no that's definitely going to be racy but sexuality and disability like they think it was going to be like a you know like a rehab talk or something and then you know there's an, an artist on stage with like a 10 inch strap on doing a strip and like super grimy awesome you know performer and people like i'm not exaggerating ushering like running their children off out. I was like, well, you know, that's what you get. That was writer Essie Smith talking with Sins Invalid co-founder Patricia Byrne. Again, their new show, brand new material, is called Birthing, Dying, Becoming Crip Wisdom, and you can see it in San Francisco this October. That's our show, listeners. Just a quick note about who makes this program. Popaganda is produced by the nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. So become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. And don't forget, we want to hear your stories about surviving white-dominated and male-dominated spaces. If you're a teacher, how do you deal with the gender and race dynamics in your class? If you're a student, how do you deal with getting your ideas across? If you're a musician, how do you navigate the world of mostly male showbookers and record execs? We want to hear your stories. So record a voice memo about your life experience and send it in to Sarah with an H at bword.org before October 14th. Or better yet, just do it right now. All right, as you know, my favorite part of the podcast is all of you, the listeners. This week's listener note comes from Megan, who joined the Beehive and wrote in to say, I found bitch completely by accident, and it was the best accident ever. That's great. I love when people stumble across the show, but let's have some people find out about bitch on purpose, right? 
You can help us out by sharing this show on your social media, telling your friends to subscribe, and leaving us a review in iTunes. I also just love to hear what you have to say, what you think of the show. Send us a tweet or an email anytime. Like, really, I read them all. It makes my day. The music on today's show is by the band Shopping, a rad little outfit out of Britain. Shopping, great band. Thanks for listening. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.